of Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, we worked steadily through Paul's preface, which included his self-introduction, as well as an introduction to the gospel. We saw that the gospel is the fulfillment of the ancient promises spoken by the prophets concerning God's son. We also listened, and if you haven't heard it since last week, we also listened as Paul shared his heart for the church, which left many of us, including myself, considering how I could better love the bride of Christ, right? Because this, uh, these last two years have not endeared our hearts to the church so much. And so we need that section of text to teach us, to reteach us how to love the bride as Christ loves his church. So if Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15 is the preface, then Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 is Paul's thesis statement. In other words, this is his main point, and everything is going to flow out from this main point. Uh, this passage has been appropriately dubbed the nerve center of the letter. That's because the rest of the letter, everything else that we're going to see in Romans is going to come back to this central statement. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This passage carries such a gravitas and hope that Paul will never move beyond it in Romans. It's not like he's going to have a section that he talks about the gospel and then a section for application. No, it is the gospel and then gospel application. It is the gospel and then how we relate to each other. We never move beyond it. Instead, Paul is going to teach us how to live in the gospel, how to bear fruit through the gospel, and how to hold it as the center of all of life. It's become, becoming a central point for us. Now, having just told his readers that he was eager to preach the gospel to the believers in Rome, Paul adds, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, to us living in the 21st century, it may seem strange that he would include this sentiment in a summary statement with his main point. To Christians who have gone to church most of their lives, to people who have been surrounded by Christian friends, to people who have never really crossed the street and talked to neighbors, to people who have all their Christian buddies, and maybe you live in a, in a world where all the ladies in the Red Hat Club are Christian, and everybody around you is just kind of hanging out, and they're Christian. And so for us, it seems strange for somebody to say, I'm not embarrassed of the gospel. Well, <laughs> no need for you to be. We're not embarrassed of it here. Um, why, why would there be any shame for the gospel? But I think if you open your eyes to the wider world that actually is, if you get beyond the red hat clubs, right? The Christian book, book clubs. If you get beyond this private world of Christianity and you began looking at the real world that exists, it's the same unbelieving world in which Paul lived and worked, the same unbelieving world in which we live and work. His declaration, I am not embarrassed of the gospel, makes much more sense. It makes, it, it, I understand now because of the wider context of the world in which we actually live. Sure, 
and my little buddies of Christianity that I, my Christian buddies that I don't really even have to worry about saying things like sanctification or will you pray for me? Because none of that's strange to them. But it's when I begin crossing the street with my neighbor who has never stepped foot in a church that I begin to realize, oh, you can be embarrassed of the gospel. There is a temptation to be embarrassed of the gospel. Paul, as one who is set apart to reclaim the name of Christ to the Gentiles, knew that he had a strange message. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18, he says that the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. A few verses later, in verse 23, he says that it is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Now, let me just remind you. Now, we, we have this catchword gospel, Christianity, Jesus, right? I mean, we get the, the Sunday school answer uh, all the time. Like, like, who's the most important person in the universe? Jesus, right? It's like, like we get the, the gospel Christianese pretty well. But let's just think for a moment what we are actually preaching, what we are actually saying when we preach the gospel. Hint, hint. Preaching the gospel is not publicly driving to Mardell. Preaching the gospel is not wearing a t-shirt that says Jesus is my homeboy. Preaching the gospel is not putting a bumper sticker that says, I hope you follow Jesus this closely. (laughs) None of that's the gospel. What is the gospel? We believe in a triune God who created all things and to whom all things are accountable. We believe that all people have sinned. It's not simply that they have a few minor character defects or make a few haphazard mistakes. No, all humans are born with an inherent rebellious, insurrectionist nature that seeks to throw off the authority of God in their lives. We believe that because all people are sinners, all people stand under the righteous, just wrath of God. That's right. Not just his displeasure, but wrath and everything that entails. As any good judge should do, God cannot allow injustice to go unanswered. Humanity has rejected an infinitely good God, and therefore now they face an infinitely bad consequence of judgment. We also believe that God loved the world And so he sent his son to save the world, the son, the world who, the the word who has always existed and through whom all things were made took on flesh. That's right. God became a man. We proclaim it without any kind of shame. God became a man. Not just that he walked among humans and lived a perfect life free from sin But he didn't come simply to show off his perfection. He came to reconcile sinners to the Father through his death. God became a man to die. And this death came in the form of a cross. The God who became a man died in a most humiliating manner. A death reserved only for slaves and criminals. A death to exact the most embarrassing of shame. As typically the victim was stripped naked and left bare for all to see the displeasure of Rome. He died. He was buried. But on the third day, he came back to to life. 
No, seriously. He came back to life. We're not just saying metaphorically. We're not just making it an allegory. There's not just some dead Jesus. We're saying he, his idea is resurrected. No, Jesus came back to life. Not walking dead style. We're talking about walking living savior style who busted through the tomb. In a zombie, he's the risen Lord. He came back to life. Hundreds of people saw him. And then to put the cherry on the top of the cake, he ascended to the right hand throne of God where he sits still as a man reigning over all things. Every microbe, every virus, every particle, every breath, submissive to his sovereign authority. And he has sent us out to tell the whole world to give up their trust in their gods, to give up trust in self, to give up their love for themselves, to give up their love for the things of this world, to even despise their money in order to trust and love him. Now, one day, this God who became a man and died and was buried and rose again will come back and make a new heaven and a new earth. Now that all sounds great, but put yourself into the seat of people who've never heard that message or believe that message. It's a really strange, bizarre message. It's odd. When the Jews heard this message, they were fine with the idea of a creator. They had acknowledged there was God, a father, God, the father. And God's spirit hovered over the, the ocean when it was over the waters, when, it, when there was creation. So they were fine even this concept of God. And they, were even, they even acknowledged their sin. They, no Jew would ever say they weren't a sinner. And God's just, God was just in condemning sinners. But when it came to the notion that God became a man and then died on a cross, that was simply too much to accept. If Jesus truly was the long-awaited Messiah, then how could he have died on the cross? They constantly take it back to this point. God would never allow his chosen anointed one to die in such a humiliating, shameful way that the king of all would be stripped bare, whipped and bloodied, and then nailed and defeated by the Romans. On a cross, absolutely not. And then if you're going to go so far as to suggest that this guy who got crucified was God himself, that's just outright blasphemous. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with a Jew about the gospel, but it comes back to that every single time. You really believe that God would humble himself so much to the point that he would die on a cross? Absolutely not. The Greeks were a little easier to talk to. I mean, they were fine. I mean, they loved the philosophical banter back and forth. I mean, they created entire buildings just so that they could have places to reason and debate with one another. In fact, it was the Greeks who made public restrooms with no stalls so that the men could come sit on the throne and discuss politics and philosophy together. (laughs) A little tidbit of a little nerdy information there for you. They built this huge building where they gathered their Greeks together and they would just discuss any kind of new ideas coming their way. 
And so they were more than happy to listen to Paul bringing this new philosophy called the gospel. Wow, this is neat. This is kind of Platonian a little bit. It sounds, it sounds neat and unique and challenges what we believe. But then he got to the part about the resurrection. They laughed. Acts chapter 17, verse 32. Who's ever heard of a man raising from the dead? That's just ridiculous. To this day, the gospel is no less ludicrous and laughable in the world we live. If you find it strange at the world's rejection of the gospel, you clearly have not hung out with non-believers enough. And it's probably time to expand your circle just a little bit. Because we believe a very strange message. While living in a nominally Christian context, and I say that nominally because most of your friends who say they're Christian maybe aren't. They may be okay with the gospel. They may be able to use Christianese. But when it comes to actually preaching the gospel, what's the gospel? Well, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of a personal feeling, you know. They don't really get to what the gospel actually is. If you go out into the public and you begin speaking about your belief, you'll find just how strange it is. Sit down with your neighbor who doesn't acknowledge the existence of God and tell them what you believe. And then you'll soon find how strange it is to put all your hopes, that's right, all your hopes in life and death in this man named Jesus. Sit down with a philosophy professor from a well-known university and listen as he mocks the idea of absolute morality, a.k.a. sin. And then the idea that there's a divine judge? Really? Watch as a materialist smirks at your belief in spiritual realities. You really think there's more to come. Listen as the politician lectures you on why we can't put all our hopes in a future king that we cannot even see at the moment. The gospel is no less of a stumbling block, no less foolish today than it was when Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now here's the question though. Are we ashamed of the gospel? In our Christian context, we're pretty bold in using our Christianese, aren't we? But it's when we begin meeting with people that don't agree or don't believe that we really bluster our feathers a little bit. We just can't understand. How, how, can, they, wow, how can they be so against Jesus? Well, because the world's against Jesus. That's the way it is. I'm not asking, do you turn every conversation with your neighbor back into a bid to get them to pray a prayer? What I am asking is, do you take the opportunities that are right there in front of you? Or do you blush at this idea? Do you become somehow apologetic or embarrassed? My friends, I felt the heat of working with Chinese Muslims and trying to explain to them that in believing in the Trinity... We don't believe in three different gods. We're not pantheist. And listening to them laugh at this nonsensical idea of Trinity. I felt the heat of Buddhists who laughed at the idea of, an, of a peaceful eternal life, free from condemnation. I've sat down with college students, secular college students, and felt them laugh as you try to tell them there's more than a career. There's more than the bank account. There's more than the cars. There's more than all the stuff that you want. 
My friends, it means not blushing at the opportunities that present themselves. It means being bold enough to take the opportunity when it comes. Your neighbor's weeping over the loss of her mother. Do you see that for what it is? No, don't, don't whip out your gospel track and start working it through with her. But show her why there's hope even in death. Your neighbor comes over to riff about all the politics. Perfect opportunity to say, you know what? You're right. It stinks. Good thing we have a king. I mean, we, just don't, we just don't do that, do we? Thank you. Thank you. I don't know who you are, but you're awesome. But the reality is, is that's what it means to be unashamed of the gospel. We're more bold about our favorite politicians, about our favorite sports team. We'll wear their jerseys. We'll get into fights over who's going to win the Super Bowl. Like knock down, drag out, heated arguments. We will end friendships over what we think they believe. And yet the name of Jesus never dons the conversation. Ah! That's embarrassment. Let's just call it for what it is. For I am not ashamed of the Republican Party. For I'm not ashamed to be a Democrat. For I am not ashamed to continue to bid for the Dallas Cowboys, though Jesus will come back before they go to the Super Bowl. I mean, there's some of you that's like, the Cowboys are out, and you're still wearing your jerseys, you know? Why? Because you're not embarrassed of them. Well, good for you. Don't be embarrassed about the gospel. Don't be embarrassed about this message that we believe. So Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. Foolish though it may seem to everyone else. But what makes him so confident about it? Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel because of what the gospel is. Listen to what he says. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For Paul, the gospel is more than mere theory. As much as people are tempted to turn away at the gospel, to laugh at the gospel, to reject it as foolishness, it is in fact God's power which affects salvation. In what way is it powerful though? To answer this, you have to pay careful attention to who God is. This is why theology matters. Who is God and what is he like? What does his attributes demand? If you have read your Bible, you know God is infinitely perfect. Meaning that in his infinite perfection, he cannot tolerate sin. As mentioned before, what do we expect a good judge to do? A good judge will judge and punish wrongdoing. According to the Bible, God's perfect unbending justice is a part of his name, which means it's a part of his very nature. He can't, he can't stop being a just God. He told Moses on the mountain that he is the Lord, the Lord, who will by no means clear the guilty. I mean, that is a powerful statement will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, absolute, unwavering, unmitigated justice. 
is what we would expect from the sovereign God of the universe. If the God of the Bible were in some way fickle in his judgment, letting some go and not punishing others and punishing some sin and whatever, he would not be a just God. A just God must judge sin. Absolutely must. Still more, let's just turn up the heat a little bit here. The perfectly just God sees everything we do. We tend to shy away from this in our modern day because we don't want to communicate God as like he's the communist government. But I will say this. He's the original omnipotent, omniscient, the only omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent being in all the universe. And he's the greatest just judge that's ever lived, that's ever existed. Here's what he says. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord? And not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord, do I not fill the heaven and the earth? Declares the Lord. He sees every act of rebellion, every moment of selfishness, every instance in which a person treacherously rejects his commands. So very simply, on their own, there is no escape from the judgment of our guilt. Where can we run? Seriously, where can you go to escape the justice of God? He sees what you've done. He knows what you've said. He sees your heart. Now, where can you go? God says, nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command my serpent and it shall bite them. In other words, all the money of the world, all the armies of the nations, safe houses buried deep in the earth, towering fortresses, nor anything else can save you from the punishment of sin. You could be the richest man in all the earth and your money will not save you. You could be best friends with the president and a presidential pardon will not rescue you. It won't. You could be the strongest man in all the earth. You will not withstand for a second the tidal wave of God's justice. You'll be blown away. In all the earth, there is only one thing powerful enough to withstand the judgment of God. The gospel. The gospel. It is the power of God that saves us from the wrath of God. No human can escape God's justice unless they find refuge in the good news of Jesus. Everything else, your politics, your morality, your bank account, everything you put your hopes in, it's a house of sticks and hay. And it's blown over like that. The breath of his justice. But the gospel is the brick house that withstands that storm. Am I making too much of the gospel here? Am I I stepping onto me toes telling you that you put your hopes in the wrong things? It is the gospel. If a person 
trust in Jesus and what he has done on the cross. We're about to get real explicit about the gospel here in a minute. Then the power of God will cause his infinite justice to rest on Christ who died on behalf, on our behalf. I've met some big people in my lifetime. Wealthy, powerful people. I mean, no one Brad Pitt powerful, but still. Met some pretty powerful people. It is humbling to think that the most powerful people in the world have no power against the justice of God. All of us must enter into the same refuge with our heads down low, pleading and begging for refuge in the gospel. You realize at the end of time, everybody's Rolexes will fall off. Everybody's coats will be burnt up. Their cars will be crumbled. Their bank accounts will be forgotten. The politician will have to step down. Because there is a king who reigns forever and is only those rich or poor, black or white, it doesn't matter, male or female, they all must come to him to be saved. Because he is the only power that withstands the powerful justice of God. His comment that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek needs some explanation He's not talking about the Gentiles somehow being inferior to the Jews as if they're lesser than or other than. He's simply saying that because the Jews receive the promises of God first, they get the announcement of the fulfillment of that promise first. We're going to see that uh, as we work through Romans. Paul makes it a point to go to the synagogue first, to go preach to the Jews first, offering the gospel to them. And then when they reject, he goes to the Gentiles as well. So it's not this that we're as Gentiles are inferior somehow um, or that we're lesser than or other than. It's simply that the Jews get the gospel first because it was preached to them first. Second, in his statement, Paul highlights that there is only one means of salvation. How is a Jew saved? By the gospel. How is a Gentile saved? By the gospel. How is everyone saved? By the gospel. Which very simply means it doesn't matter what biological descent you have. All people, everyone, every single individual must come to the gospel. Every single one. A Jew who can trace his family lineage right up to the original patriarch needs salvation that is offered in Christ as much as the idol-worshiping Greek who has not one drop of Jewish blood. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Can I just tell you my prayer for Romans? My prayer is, is that you won't walk away from Romans seeing just how much the world needs the gospel. My prayer in studying Romans is that you'll see just how much you need the gospel. You see, things get turned on their head when we stop saying, yes, they really need the gospel. 
And when we begin being the tax collector saying, me, I need the gospel. I'm the sinner. I can't lift my eyes to heaven. Everyone needs the gospel. You're not above it. It doesn't matter how much better your life looks in it. It doesn't matter who you've aligned yourself with. You need the gospel desperately and you will never outgrow that need. You are in need every single day and a liberal who votes different from you needs the gospel just as much as you do. Want to classify people? Fine, classify them all as needy. We want to rank people? Great. They all rank really low. Yourself included. It's only because of the gospel of Jesus that we have any hope of having reconciliation with God. Now, third point Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. I shouldn't have worn a sweater today. Sorry, guys. If anyone feels sorry for me and turns down the air, I would not be unapologetic. <laughs> Ladies in the back, get your coats on. <laughs> it only gets better, okay? Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. He expounds on what he means by this when he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, what does the gospel do? How does it bring salvation? Paul says it reveals the righteousness of God. Now, I think at this point, it's important to remember or to at least ask the question, what is the righteousness of God? At, a, at its most basic level, righteousness means, ready for this? It's really complex. Rightness. Righteousness means Rightness, to be right. Now, who is being right at this juncture? Um, is, it, is it talking about God? Like God has this attribute that he is right, is God's righteousness, is his perfect rightness? Or second, could it mean a righteous, a person's righteous status with God, his right standing in the eyes of the Lord? Or third, could it mean God's righteous action? In other words, his work of making people right. You see, there's all these options available to us. You just kind of pick them up, try them out, and see which one fits. While I think the gospel certainly shows that God is perfectly right, that he has no moral, no moral sin whatsoever, he doesn't, he doesn't have any flaw, I'm not so sure that's what's meant here in this text. In fact, if you read the rest of Romans, that's not the way that righteousness is used. I think it implies it. But I don't think that's the way it's used. As he uses the term in Romans, it tends to refer to God's right work in making sinners and counting them as right. In other words, the phrase describes both God's action, which is making us right. That's his action. He has counted us right. And our status as being counted as right. So God's action our status. I think those two things come together. In other words, the phrase describes both of what's true about what God has done and what's true about us because of what he has done. As one commentator puts it, God's righteousness is the act by which God brings his people into a right relationship with himself. John Piper explains it similarly. He says, God demands righteousness and we don't have it. 
and we, don't, and we don't have it. So the only hope for us is that God himself would give the righteousness that he demands. You hear that. God demands righteousness. You're bankrupt. Unless God fills your bank with his righteousness, you will never be righteous. So the righteousness of God, which is revealed through both what he has done, the rightness of what he has done, and the rightness of now who we are is revealed through the gospel. Of course, we would be negligent if we did not press our thoughts even further. I know that might have just confused all of you. But what God has done is right, and now we are considered right. That's very simple about the righteousness of God. Now, how did that happen? How did we become right? How did God work in a right way? Now, I think as Paul will show, God's right action in counting us right with him comes through Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection alone. Let's just review some of the things. This may sound redundant, but it's absolutely essential to the gospel. It would not be right for God to leave sin unpunished. Amen or no? Okay, it would not be right for God to leave sin unpunished. Every transgression must be punished. For God will not clear the guilty. Remember that phrase? without his justice being poured out on their rebellion. And yet there's this tricky little thing where in the Old Testament, God also promised forgiveness. Just like it's a part of his name and nature, I will by no means clear the guilty. He's also the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How do those two things come together? You see, this is a dilemma, Right? This is a seeming paradox. How can the God who is absolutely just and who says, I will by no means clear the guilty. Every single sin will be punished. How is that the same God who also says, I will be a God merciful and gracious, forgiving sin? Okay, God, which one is it? At this point, we we feel like, you know, maybe his name's bipolar a little bit, right? Where it's from justice to grace, but it's not. He stands in unity with himself. The gospel reveals how God's justice and God's mercy come together. Jesus reveals the rightness of what, is, what he has done. He is right in not clearing the guilty. It always amazes me how often I hear Christians believe, I'm so glad God didn't punish my sin. God did. Let's fix the terminology. God did punish your sin. He just didn't punish you. You see the difference? God did punish your sin. Every single idolatry, every single sexual immorality, every single apathy, everything. God punished your sin. Where? At the cross, which is why you can be forgiven. God's justice and God's mercy mingle together and cannot be separated at Jesus. God is absolutely right at the cross. The bloody body of Jesus, the broken brow where the crown of thorns sits, proves that God will by no means clear the guilty. And yet the consequence of that shows that he is a Lord merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love who forgives sin. The gospel alone shows us that because of what God has done in Jesus, the Lord is absolutely irreproachable. 
I haven't done an irreproachable thing in my lifetime. <laughs> I mean, it's, my goodness. Everything I do has some something in it can be reproached. Even the best sermon I preach can be reproached. I can't even do the dishes in an irreproachable way. But God is absolutely irreproachable. He has worked it perfect. He has worked it worked perfectly right in the absolute way that was needed, giving justice and mercy at the same time. Gospel just blows our minds at that. Now, in saying that the righteousness of God is revealed, Paul is setting a deliberate contrast with the passage that's coming up next week in which Adam's going to preach for us. Paul says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God while the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. We're not going to get too much into that text because I want to save it for next week. But very simply, God will be revealed to all humanity, but not all will experience the the same manifestation of his glory. You realize that God will be revealed to all. Either his righteousness will be revealed, his saving action will be revealed, and he will be seen as Lord and Savior, or he will be manifested as the just, unmitigating, unwavering judge. All humanity will see him for who he is. Let me just ask you at this point, what will be revealed to you on the last day when Christ returns? Will you see the righteousness of God revealed in the face of Jesus? Or will you see the just judgment and punishment of your judge coming? What's the difference? Well, faith. Who you trust in. What you trust in. How well you trust it even sometimes. Not saying that those that have weak faith have anything to fear, but do we trust absolutely in Jesus is the question. Faith is the crucial element in this passage. Paul says that the righteousness of of God is revealed from faith for faith. In other words, knowing God's saving work and enjoying our right status begins with faith and ends with faith. Now, there's a terrible tragedy in our modern theology. Oftentimes we speak of, have have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you prayed? past tense, to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Everything's past tense, right? Put your faith in Jesus. Have you believed in Jesus? And we tend to communicate it as if it's this one-time moment, as if faith is only the initial declaration of one's need for Jesus. Now, what I'm not saying here, I do think justification is a one-time act, but justification and faith are not the same thing. We're going to see that in Romans. You are justified once. But that's not what Paul's saying here in this text. You see, the problem with us speaking about faith as if it's this one a thing that we use once and then we're done with and then we move on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I put my faith in Jesus a long time ago. The problem with this is that we have more baptism certificates than there are actually people who love and obey the Lord. There's more people with their names on a church roster than there are actually people who can explain to you the gospel. That's the problem with that. The reality is that when we speak of faith as if the only goal is to save us from eternal judgment, like we put our faith in Jesus and then we're done with it, it saves us. 
The problem is we give no, people no real motivation to continue walking in faith after their initial assent that Jesus is Lord. We make faith just an assent, just an agreement. Do you agree that Jesus is Lord? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. You put your faith in him. But that's not how Romans nor anywhere else in the New Testament describes faith. Faith is not something we do and then move beyond. Faith is something we live in and grow in. I love the way Dane Ortland explains in his book, Deeper. He says this, apparently the apostles considered the gospel not a one-time vaccination that spares us from hell, but food to nourish us all the way to heaven. Right? I mean, we, we kind of, we treat the gospel as equivalent to the COVID vaccine. Yeah, I got the shot. You know, I heard, I heard one guy say, I got the Fauci algae. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> and then we're good, right? We move on. My friends, the gospel is not a vaccination against hell. The gospel is the manna, right? It's the, the food, the nourishment, the water in the cup that you must drink to stay hydrated and stay alive. It's the air that must fill your lungs day after day. You didn't just take one breath this morning. You've taken thousands of breaths between the time you woke up and now, and you were breathing when you were asleep. The gospel is something you breathe in, breathe out, and breathe in, and you keep growing in the gospels, expanding your lungs in it, allowing your roots to go deep in it. Faith is the heart of what it means to be righteous people. Paul quotes uh, Habakkuk 2.4 as evidence of this. You can go all the way back to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, just to lay the context, God promises judgment on sinful, idolatrous Judah. The The Chaldeans, the Babylonians are coming. And all of idolatrous Judah will languish under God's wrath. But then in chapter 2, verse 4, you get this strange statement but the righteous will live by faith. Now, some scholars say that Paul is misusing Habakkuk too. I don't think he is. Let me explain why. When judgment is poured out on Judah, when famine strikes, when the Babylonian enemy stands at the gate, God's righteous ones continue to trust in him because they are known for their faith. They never move beyond it. Habakkuk writes it this way. Though the figs should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fall, or and the fields yield not fruit, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. In Habakkuk, the righteous are known for their consistent, continual trust in God. Now, I think it's important for us to apply this. What does it mean to be people of faith? Not just people who at one point or another prayed to believe that, to to accept Jesus as Lord. Not just that, but people who live in faith, right? We trust God for our eternal life, but we can't trust God with what's going on on the international scale. The Russians drive up to Ukraine and suddenly we're like, ah! China does what it's done for decades. And suddenly we're like, it's over. Pandemics hit. Shots come out. Masks come out. 
Favorite politicians topple. Oh, I put my faith in Jesus, but I can lose my mind at this point. No, my friends, people of faith, righteous ones, are people who trust and believe in Jesus continually. They live in it. They walk in faith. They haven't just done faith. They are in faith at this moment. Though the pandemic may linger, though the economy may ebb, though shortages and downsizing and disruptions may come, though war be declared, though cancer strikes, though my car flips over on the ice, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You can't say that. You're not a person of faith. People of faith stand steadfast in faith. And it governs us. Faith governs us. It dictates how we talk to other people, how we disagree, how we live with our spouses, how we speak to our children, what we choose for entertainment. The gospel even comes in and governs over those negative Saturday feelings that you have that I had yesterday. It governs the way you respond when something completely unexpected happens. The gospel is for everything in your life. Are you down and depressed? There's a gospel for that. Not saying that there's no medical, mental thing going on, but simply to say, you need the gospel when you're down. You angry? There's a gospel for that. You sad? You broken? You angry? You fearful? You mad? Are you an alcoholic? There's a gospel that God has given us that can give us what we need in Jesus. And as the spirit and the bride say, come and drink and buy water without money. Buy bread without price. Have your thirst quenched and your hunger satisfied. My friends, we have a long road to go in Romans. And every week, my hope is that it will be a mixture of hammer of the gospel and a pillow of the gospel that the gospel will knock you hard off of your platform and off of the pinnacle of pride. And yet the gospel will also give you the pillow to fall in for Jesus. That it will convict you and encourage you that it will cut wound and mar you scar you and then heal you, restore you and grow you. That is why we're doing Romans. Because we need to be recentered in who Jesus is and the righteousness of God revealed and what he has done. Let's pray. Father God, I pray, Lord, that this very poor and inadequate message of gospel, Father, has landed where you intended it to go. I pray that these people will find themselves encouraged, challenged, critiqued, restored, wounded, and healed by the good message that Jesus died to save us from our sins. 
that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. May we believe that gospel forever and always. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.